0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast podcast. Going to be a short one today because, frankly, we had an interview with Michael Lombardi this morning on the radio show that was just awesome. And I don't want to sit on it for 24 hours and then release it tomorrow with a few other conversations with other people. I want to get it out to the masses, to the people I care about you. So please, if you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. Give it a five-star rating on iTunes, as many of you have, and I very much appreciate that. And for now, enjoy Michael Lombardi talking about Deshaun Watson, talking about Bill O'Brien, and various other things around the league. Really good interview. We got a lot of great feedback from today. Michael is, uh, even though I disagree with his opinions at times, is freaking brilliant. Uh, just the volume of information this guy has and the things he knows and the experiences he's had from around the league are just beyond compare. If you buy his book, Gridiron Genius, uh, you'll very much enjoy it. If you're looking for some football reading, it's got stories about Al Davis, Bill Parcells, a whole bunch of Bill Belichick, and uh, it's just a, a highly and well-curated curated um, collection of stories of his life in the NFL and his philosophy about way things should operate, etc. But please enjoy this interview. It was a really good one. Joined now by Michael Lombardi from The Ringer, a uh, longtime NFL executive and author of the book Gridiron Genius, that I'm working my way through. Michael, I, I'm enjoying this book tremendously, uh, and there's 20 different things I'd want to talk about, but I, I think we do have to talk about Deshaun Watson, obviously, at some point in this interview. I'm reading the part about Al Davis and what he looked for in the traits in his players. And one of the big things was, how did you do versus big-time competition in college? So I'm trying to figure out exactly what Al Davis would have thought of Deshaun Watson. Because he's not he's not prototypical in terms of size and whatnot, but he did his best versus the best competition. And dominated.
0: I mean what I would have loved about Deshaun was the day he was in high school as a freshman, he became the starting quarterback at his high school. And it wasn't a podunk high school. It wasn't where they were playing eight man football. It was a legitimate Georgia high school big time program. And then the minute he goes to Clemson, he starts as a freshman there. And he and that's at the big time program. And so to me, the the pedigree of who Deshaun Watson was as a young man would have spurred Al's interest. His ability to throw the ball deep down the field like the throw to Will fuller. You know, interceptions for Al were never what he was concerned with. He was concerned with getting the ball vertically down the field. I think Al would have really liked Deshaun. And his ability to make plays and his style of play. Now, I thought Deshaun played way better. Week two to week from week one. Much more accurate, have better control of the football. You know, the Texans just shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, they just get too many first and, ten, first and 20s, first and 15s. They have too many stupid penalties on drives. They don't take care of the details. And really, that was a game that was there for the taking and they just let slip away.
2: Michael, one of the things I, I wonder about is, and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm crazy on this, I'm going to lay out a specific sequence from the game on Sunday. Right. This is. When it was a tie game, 17-all, the Texans complete a nice pass from Deshaun to Bruce Ellington get down to the to, to the Tennessee 38-yard line. This is what they do. They go screen to Will Fuller. They go screen to Hopkins. Then they do a deep pass when Deshaun's under pressure, incomplete pass. They have to punt, and it was a bad net punt. My issue with that is sometimes I feel like the, the coaching staff here, maybe the quarterback too, they don't look at these games holistically. The Texans ran the ball really well on Sunday, and to me, when you get the ball to the 38 yard line, it's a tie game. You want to mix in a run in that spot. I almost worry they're trying to call the perfect play against the perfect defense, and instead they end up going tunnel screen, tunnel screen pass. What do you think about that sequence of plays and just like the philosophy that goes into it?
0: I, I think this. I think you know, to me, there's always a point in the game where you got to win the game, and, and, and I think that comes from the head coach at some point. You know, somebody's in the in the headset saying, hey, we're going to win the game right here. So every call's got to be important. We're in four-down territory. You know, and sometimes on these bubble screams, and I'm not in Houston. I don't know how they set it up, but sometimes those are at-the-line calls. You know, Billy might have called a run at the line, and based on the front, they just threw the bubble because they thought it was going to be a better situation. And so it's hard to predict if that was actually came from the sideline or if it wasn't just a check. I, I Look, to me, that really was bad. And when, when you did it on first down, you had to try to get something. Because I'm telling you, I think they would have gone for it on fourth down. It would have been close. And, you know, mm-hmm. it just is one of those situations where that was another point in the game where they had an opportunity to win the game, and it looked like they were going to do it, and they just couldn't put it together when it mattered the most. And for a, for a degree, I, I understand where you're coming from, and you've got to find those moments in the game. This is where we got to win the game, and they just couldn't do it.
1: It looked to me like he had the option to throw that pass, and that's what he did. Uh, but in other parts of the game, I don't think I can't remember in this game Deshaun pulling the ball and running on a zone read once, where it looked like every time he handed the ball off, that was a called run and that was it. Because there were times where he had the opening where if it was an option, he could have taken it. Do you think they're? Do you think they're just being careful with him at this point?
0: I do. I think they are, but I think they have to realize that look, his his threat of the run is just as dangerous as his run itself, right? And so that's what opens up everything else, and and so. You know, when you do that, it it forces you. Look, when you have a quarterback with Deshaun Watson's talent, you can't play two deep man under on third down because he'll scramble for the first down unless you really rush perfectly. You can't really play certain coverages, and so you've got to take advantage of it. And I thought they did a giant step forward last week offensively. I know they didn't score enough points. to win the game, but the offense looked much better. Look, they're managing a bad line, let's face it. The offensive line is going to have to improve greatly to go on the road and play well. And so that's going to be the issue. And Watson played better. This is a huge week this week because the Giants come in, and they got to be able to move the ball on the Giants, control. If Olivier Vernon plays, they're going to have to handle him because he can disrupt the game.
2: Genevieve and Clowney didn't play for the Texans this past Sunday, yet he still had an impact on the game with an unsportsmanlike conduct. Penalty. He's going into a unique contract situation where it's uncertain what the Texans will do if they'll franchise him or give him a long-term extension this off-season. But I ask you this, Mike: How would Bill Belichick have handled the situation where an inactive player is getting fined for, excuse me, flagged for a 15-yard penalty?
0: Inactive players wouldn't be on the sideline in New England. That would have, that's an easy question. They have a, they have their own. They go up to the box up in up there. They're not there on the sideline. Nobody's on the sideline in New England that doesn't have an impact on the game. That's why New England sideline looks like, you know, it, there's nobody on it, you know. <laughs> you look at some of these team sidelines, I mean it looks like they're selling tickets to get down there. You know, so uh you know like no. Nobody nobody's on the sideline in New England that doesn't have an impact that doesn't have a role in the game, you know. So you're just not down there observing and if there's a player down there it's because he's down there for a reason and you know, everything, look, everything in New England is the details are covered. And so that nothing's left to
1: chance. Uh, speaking of New England, you have experience, a lot of experience with Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. He worked for the Patriots. Um, and then you were also with the Browns when Josh Gordon was his most productive, uh, in his stay there. I, I hate to bring this up because I feel like people are insulting Randy Moss by even bringing his name up in the same conversation as Josh Gordon. But at the very core, like, not football skills or anything else. Like, And aside from the addiction issues, what's the difference between Randy Moss and Josh Gordon?
0: Oh, I think it starts with the love of the game, right? I mean, Randy Moss loved football. Randy Moss was smart about football. Randy Moss could tell you things that were going on in the field. And Belichick would be the first to admit to you that Randy Moss taught him a lot about the deep passing game, about what happens 20 yards past once the play starts to evolve and what can happen and how to attack coverages and that kind of thing. Josh isn't that kind of player. Josh is really, really talented. Josh is God-gifted. And he's made the most of his gifts, but he hasn't capitalized on them. He's, he's really cheated himself out of a lot of earning power and a lot of rewards because of the addiction issues and not being able to get his life off the field, which to me is the most important part of this whole saga because football is not always going to be there. And and so he's got to get his life in order, and that's been a struggle. At Baylor, it was a struggle. At Utah, it was a struggle. In Cleveland, it's been a six-year struggle. And, and it's going to continue to be unless he can get his life turned around. And it's an everyday, it's one a day, and you're going to have to, he's going to have to work on it one time every
1: single day. And that's the one thing I wonder because in in your book, one of the things you discuss is football character. And there's a difference between kind of real world morality and then football character, where you can have guys that have their issues on the outside in in their families with substance abuse, whatever. But that if they love football and they care about their teammates and they'll play through injury and everything, they can still have good football character. I, I played with Jimmy Smith in Jacksonville, who had all kinds of off the field troubles. But man, he was one of the best teammates you could ever have. Uh, and right. I just—I'm pessimistic that Josh Gordon is going to be that guy that can fight through it.
0: Uh, me too, uh, Seth. I, I just haven't seen him be able to fight through anything. Mental toughness has not been Josh's strong suit, and I say that respectfully and hoping that I'm wrong. And but I wrote about it for the Athletic. I just don't see this. You know, there's. There's things like he has a clothing line, like Josh Gordon has so many things that are he has to get in order before the clothing line really should take off. I mean, their priorities are not in order.
2: Was Pittsburgh always this much of a mess and no one knew about it? Because this year between Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, the offensive lineman, Mike Tomlin just does not seem to have control over a lot.
0: You know, I've always viewed Pittsburgh, and I think Mike Tomlin's a really good motivator. I think Mike Tomlin, if you want to give a speech and you want to get them all rallied up, you bring in Mike Tomlin, you're going to get it done. I think Mike Tomlin's press conferences are worth watching every every day. That being said, I think there's a lot of details in the game that never get covered, and I think you see it. Look, they have over 200 yards of penalties already this season. You know, there's a fine-tuning. There's a style of play that you have to play, and they haven't been able to do it. They haven't been able to maintain it, and I think that's been the core issue Uh, Terry Bradshaw has been very critical of Mike Tomlin and talked about it. And to a degree, there's some element that that Terry's right. But I think in the NFL, there's not a lot of great coaches. And so what you have is you have to surround yourself with what your weaknesses are. And I think right now the change of offensive coordinators has affected them a little bit. You know, they get behind. Defensively, they're not anywhere near close where they need to be on defense. I mean, they ran Dick LeBeau out of there, and they haven't quite been the same team defensively. They're a soft zone team. They don't reroute receivers. They don't rush the passer with consistency, even though last year they led the league in sacks. But I think this year's a, a struggle to begin with.
1: Why? Why did they run Dick LeBeau out of there? I still don't understand that. I still don't get this. Was it just time? Well, for Dick? I, I
0: think, I Seth, I think what's happened to the, that system, the Dick LeBeau system, and God, it was great. You know, it, it revolutionized football in the early '90s. But it's but it's not there anymore. You got to be able to really play man, and you got to be able to play man to get off the field, and you got to and you got to be able to find ways to attack the passer, and the versatility of that defense didn't allow it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really why. I think they wanted to change, and Mike's a defensive coach, and so Mike kind of wanted a hybrid of LeBose and his Tampa 2 stuff. Now, Tampa 2 doesn't work either if you don't have a three technique that can dominate. I mean, if you don't have a right end that can dominate. The Tampa 2 scheme is built on the front. This is what most people don't understand. It's the front that that, 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 that Gets quarterbacks. It isn't the coverage because you know when we were kids playing in the backyard, and you counted the five Mississippi guys could get open. If you counted the three Mississippi, nobody got open, right? So, you know, it's the same thing in football. If you can block them, you're going to get guys open. If you can't block them, nobody's going to get open. Now this week, the 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 New York Giants, they don't have to get blocked as much because he's always going to get the ball of his hands as soon as possible.
2: Hmm. Michael, when I look at the Giants, I am just astounded. Michael Lombardi, The Ringer, The Athletic, joining us on. Mad Radio, I am baffled as to how this organization decided to pass on Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and everybody else to draft a running back in Saquon Barkley. I just find that to be complete organizational malpractice. And I feel like maybe other than Cleveland, I actually like Baker Mayfield, I think the Giants long-term might be in a terrible situation because they had the chance to totally rectify what their scenario in the offseason. And I don't know how they reached the decision to draft Saquon Barkley, even though I think he's a tremendous player.
0: I think this—they live in denial, right? They're 33 and 50 over the last five years. They're 3 and 16 in the last 19 games, right? They—they they want Eli to be the guy, right? So they believe in it. They, you know, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's really the false fallacy, right? They're going down a path, and they just want to believe it. It happens in sports. The hardest thing to do when you're running an NFL team, you're running an NBA team, you're running a hockey team, is to accurately evaluate your own players. Without any bias. Belichick does it brilliantly because he steps back as the coach. He steps back as the general manager and he then evaluates it. So for me, they've never really been objective. When they opened up, when they fired the head coach last year, Ben McAdoo, when they fired Jerry Reese last year, they were never saying to themselves, we need, we need fresh ideas. We need to change things here. They wanted more of the same, so they brought in Ernie Acorsi, and Ernie Acorsi brought in Dave Gettleman. It was all incestuous within their own – they promoted Kevin Abrams. This is what they wanted to do. They wanted people to talk about Eli was still a good player, so they draft Barkley. Okay, great, you draft Barkley. They've run the ball 20 times on first down this year. Eleven of those runs have been for two yards or less. What has Barkley been, what can a running back do for a team to score points? They can't. The two best running backs in football were probably on the field the other night, right? And they, there was 20 points scored by one team and 13 scored by the other. Running backs don't generate points. The passing game generates points. And with Eli, they haven't been able to throw the ball down the field because Eli refuses to hold the ball for more than any time to throw it down the field. It's been going on. And if you look at the metrics of Eli over the last five years, his numbers have been staggeringly going down. The Giants just choose to ignore it. Nobody wants to stand up and say, this is wrong. I mean, there was an article in the Daily News last week about how Eli was done, and the next day there's an article in the New York Post that, you know, the the Giants are cheating Eli. I mean, there's a campaign (laughs) that's going on here, right? There's a marketing campaign. People have their own agendas. And the real agenda here is watch the tape. Watch the game. Take it out. You're a pro. Watch the tape. Eli hasn't been able to make throws. In three to four years, he underthrows every deep throw. You got this week. The most important thing the Houston Texans have to do. This is paramount: is play the underthrown ball on deep. If you don't turn around, they're going to get pass interference penalties down the field. You uh, got to play the underthrow because Eli is going to underthrow most throws.
1: That is a that is a beautiful nugget right there. Thank I you like for that, that, Michael. One last quick question: I need you to be referee on a long-standing conversation we've had. Uh, is Mike Vrabel on the Belichick coaching tree?
0: Not really, no. Yeah, okay. All.
1: That's what, that's what he's not never he he never actually coached for Bill Belichick. He's, so what does he really he's know? Played
0: there. There's nothing that remind, there, There's nothing that I've seen from Mike that would reminisce the Patriot program. Look, one thing about the Patriot program, I think if you read the book, you, you know that's that's the Patriot program. I'm not sure all the guys that have been in the Patriot program really could write a book because they've never seen the origins of the program. It's you know, a, you can't. You can't just begin to start it. It's like you and I, you know, like we have this great idea. Let's go open up – let's go make Emeril Lagasse's recipes offline, and we'll go open up a restaurant here in Houston, and we'll cook – we can't cook it all the same way he does, right? Right? We can steal his recipes, but we can't cook it that way. That's so, uh
1: it's a, No, it's a beautiful point because I feel like that's the one thing you see when a lot of Belichick protégés go off. And I, and I think O'Brien did it to a certain degree. O'Brien's very much his own guy, but I think there's a tendency to think like, hey, I'm going to go rebuild Rome in and, and all its glory in year one. And it's just impossible to do that because of everything you had to lay from the beginning there.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and you got to create the culture, and you have got to maintain the culture every single day. Look, I think the Texans have to—they got to nail some things down, and it starts this week. And they can't let Blaine Gabbard drive the ball down the field on them, or give up a bubble screen to Corey Davis and not tackle him. I mean, this is things they can't allow to happen. And when you play the, when you play a bad offense like that, you get beat in the special teams. Nobody covers the guy out there on the wing. I mean, those are just shooting yourself in the foot. They, the, the Texans have no one to blame. Than themselves, And here's the number one thing. If you want to know the Patriot way, I know this is going to sound ridiculously easy, but the Patriots way starts and ends with this. We're first going to avoid losing before we win. We're going to avoid losing before we win. And what happened on Sunday for the Texans was they never avoided losing.
1: Awesome stuff Michael Lombardi from The Ringer Also author of the book Gridiron Genius uh, It is just It's an awesome book A lot of times you get nervous When somebody you know Writes a book Because you're like oh, What am I going to say about it If I don't like it uh, This is a very good book And it's a very good read If you're a fan of football If you're a football coach If you're building an organization Your business uh, Very good book Michael Best of luck with the rest of your book tour Thanks man Thank you
0: Okay Picture this